Let's turn then to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. This is probably, unless you read through the scriptures and make a habit of reading through the scriptures on a regular basis, this is probably not a psalm you would turn to to read. It's kind of long. I'll confess I don't think I've ever heard a sermon, and I'm pretty sure I've never preached a sermon on Psalm 105 either. And yet, as we come to this evening in our sermon series on prayers, as we've covered prayers of adoration and prayers of confession, this psalm places before us a good reminder of what thankful prayer truly all about. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue to Israel, as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs amongst them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with prime, even in the chambers of their caves. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land. 
and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed like the desert, through the desert like a river. He remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for all the Bible. We ask that you would be with Pastor Bob as he teaches on this word, guide him as he gives the sermon to him, and that we may listen to him. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. So we want to once again look at three things from this psalm in regards to praying thankfully. First of all, we see in this psalm a call to thankful prayer. Secondly, we say see a need of thankful prayer. And then thirdly, we see a guide to thankful prayer. So a call, a means, and a guide. And it's obvious there is a call here. The psalm itself, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. That phrase of calling upon the name of the Lord is, in a sense, Old Testament language for prayer. Lift up your prayers, lift up your voice, and do what? Give thanks to the Lord. But obviously we know this is not the only place where God's word calls us and invites us to, to give thanks to him. If you go over to Psalm 106, the next psalm in the series, you have praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Or you could go to Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love continues forever. We have these passages not only in the Psalms, but you find them, for example, in Philippians 4, 6. You find it in Colossians 4, 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, where throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old, we as God's people are called to give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name that we are to offer prayers of thanksgiving to the Lord our God. So praying thankfully is something that we as God's people, we could say are commanded to do, are urged to do, but perhaps the better way of stating it, we want to do. In the heart of God's people, we desire to give God the thanks that he so richly deserves. I don't think it's really necessary to go deeper into that or to dwell upon more text. The text itself tells us plainly that we are to give thanks to the Lord by calling upon his name. The second thing I want you to note about this psalm is that there is a means given to us. 
And perhaps as, as we think about these prayers, as we put them in the context that we did with prayers of adoration and prayers of confession, in the context of Jesus speaking to his disciples, of addressing the subject of prayer, and saying, when you pray, this is how you are to pray. And then follows the Lord's Prayer. But prior to that, Jesus has instructed us that these prayers are not the, for the public. Well, there are certain prayers that are. We've talked about that. But Jesus there is addressing our personal, private prayers. Where we go into our prayer closet, where we're privately there before the Lord. Not in a corporate worship setting, not in a Bible study, not even in a family setting. But we, as an individual, are coming before the Lord. And there, as the people of God, that which should be upon our lips, individually, are our expressions of thanks to the Lord. But the psalmist here also give a, gives us a means that perhaps doesn't occur to you. So here's the picture. See yourself in your private place of prayer. You're alone. There's no one else around. Probably, perhaps, no one even within earshot. And what does the psalmist say? Verse 2. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Now, maybe for some of you that, that makes sense. Maybe for others of you, you're going, what do you mean by that? I think what the psalmist has in mind here is the fact we are to give thanks, call upon the Lord in prayer. But it is perfectly permissible that our prayer be sung. After all, that's what we're doing when we sang 210 out of the Blue Psalter hymnal. We're singing a prayer. That's what most of the psalms are. They are prayers that have been set to music, and then they are sung. That's not our invention. That's the way it was meant to be. That's why God gave, through the Holy Spirit, those words to the various psalm writers, whether it's the sons of Korah, whether it's David, whether it's Solomon, whether it's Moses. They were there. They were given to those who could then put the music to them so that they could be sung as expressions of prayer to God. Prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, but also prayers of thanks. My guess is, my guess is, knowing my own heart, is that the vast majority of the time we spend in our private prayers, our petitions, I doubt we spend a lot of time on adoration. Maybe there is some time 
introspectively praying prayers of confession. But these are things we try to get through in order we can get to the request. Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need. And maybe we, we have prayers of thanksgiving, but that's what we do. We, we just say, Lord, I thank you for. Lord, I give you thanks. And really, if we stop to think about what have we given God thanks for, we find it a little faulty. Let me give you a suggestion. Keep a book here. Keep a book here. And when you find that your time with the Lord of praying prayers of thanksgiving, your book, your statement, open up God's Psalms. Sing. Sing to him your prayer of thanksgiving. Or read the words of thanksgiving. God does not mind using his own words to give him thanks. Actually, it is pretty humble to do so. To think that I can come up with the words that I need to express my thanksgiving to God is a little bit of arrogance on my part. Perhaps I would be better served by using the words that God has already given me. Sing. Use others' words. God does not mind. Us doing so. But thirdly, as we come to this psalm, the third thing, and what I really wanted to get to at this with this message, is the guide that this psalm gives us. Now let me ask you, first of all, are you a little struck by it? Are you a little taken back by the fact that Psalm 105 is actually a psalm of thanksgiving? Because when you, you read through the psalm and you look at it, you're going, well, how come every verse doesn't start with, Lord, I thank you for, Lord, I thank you for, Lord, I thank you for. Because that's not the only way to give God thanks. You know, we, we how, will, how will I say this kindly yet truthfully? We oftentimes put so little effort into our prayers. Maybe that's the kindest way I can say it. We, we, we don't want to bother putting a lot of thought into this. This is just something we do. A few moments before a meal, a few moments afterwards, but, but do I really put some time into it? You mean you really want me to think about what I pray about before I pray it? Yeah, I think God would probably appreciate that. I think that's the point. So look at the structure of this psalm 
as a guide to how now you and I, and I include myself in this as well, okay? Believe me, I'm, I'm not ranks above you here, okay? To use this as a guide to think about and to reflect upon how does God desire for me to give him thanks in prayer? And we find here in this guide two main themes that are running through this psalm. And the first theme that is running in this psalm is the theme of God's covenant. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but it would be an interesting thing for all of us, okay? And my hand's going to re remain at my side on this one as well. How many of us, or let's put it this way, when was the last time you thanked God for being a covenant God? And yet, do you realize that's the entire theme of this book? All of Scripture is about the covenant. That's what this is about. Because it's based upon a covenant that we have a relationship with God. There is no relationship between us and God at all outside of covenant. Think about it. Either people are in the covenant of works and are under God's condemnation and judgment, or they're in a relationship with God in the covenant of grace, having known the blessings of Christ's atoning work. The only way humanity can relate to God is based upon covenant. That's the only way God has chosen to relate to us. The God of sovereignty, the God of majesty, the God of holiness, the God who creates ex nihilo, the God who takes bread and fish and can continue to break and to break and to break, defying all the laws of physics, so that over 5,000 people are fed, is the God who relates to us on the basis of covenant. I think that probably ought to be something I thank him for on an ongoing basis. Because without covenant, I as Tracy can have no relationship to God. Outside of covenant, even the unbeliever has no relationship with his creator. True, that's one of judgment. And we're under the covenant of kindness, but both are covenant. He reveals to us himself in covenant. He draws close to us through covenant. He shows his relationship to us in covenant. What is this? This is God's covenant sign. What is this? This is God's covenant sign. 
He's relating to you and I through covenant. What is this? Old covenant, new covenant. This is God's covenant. He relates to us through his covenant. And you see, this for us in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, this for us in a Reformed congregation ought to be the pulsating beat of our lives. This is what distinguishes us as Reformed believers. We are covenantal. You can't be reformed if you are not covenantal. If you're not reformed, you're something else. If you're not covenantal, you are not reformed. Now, let me first of all issue a word of warning. The problem is that many, even probably some of you here tonight, have a bad taste in your mouth as soon as I mention covenant. You're like, oh, here we go again, covenant, covenant. Because it was wrongly applied, it was wrongly preached, it was wrongly exemplified. But that doesn't mean we ought to throw covenant out. Just because there are those who practice bad covenant theology. We don't throw the Lord's Supper away because there are those people who practice poor Lord's Supper theology. No, we come back to God's truth. Look at Psalm 105. How, where does the psalmist start? But his God's covenant relationship with his people through Abraham. This covenant of grace that establishes God's relationship to us as his people. And we in the Reformed community understand how central this is. That's why this word, that's why that table, and that's why that baptismal font need to be rightly understood and they need to be rightly applied. For those who would say, well, I'm reformed. I just don't believe in this fountain. I certainly don't believe in this for infants. Are not reformed. Because that is not covenantal. Because you can't miss the fact that God related to Abraham on the basis of a covenant with his infant children. That doesn't mean those folks are not Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But don't call it reformed. Just because people acknowledge doctrines of grace does not mean they're reformed. What makes a person reformed is understanding the covenantal nature in which God relates to us. As one writer has put it, Covenantal theology refers to one of the basic beliefs that Calvinists have held about the Bible. All Protestants have remained faithful to their heritage, who re remain faithful to their heritage, affirm sola scriptura, 
the belief that the Bible is our supreme and unquestionable authority. Covenant theology, however, distinguishes the Reformed view of Scripture from other Protestant outlooks by emphasizing that divine covenants unify the teaching of the entire Bible. Richard Pratt closes his article, which is available on the back table, by the way, by saying, all of this is to say that covenant theology has as much to offer every Christian. So when we ask ourselves, what is Reformed theology? It serves us well to respond. Reformed theology is covenant theology. If you're Reformed, you're covenantal. And if you're covenantal, you're Reformed. I did not say you're Christian. But it is the defining of who we are. Therefore, in our gratitude to God, in our prayers of thanksgiving, that covenant ought to be central. Look what's happening in this psalm. Verse 6, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen one. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Verse 9, the covenant that he made with Abraham, he has sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Is the word everlasting meaningful? Is the word everlasting mean until Jesus dies on the cross? Or does the word everlasting mean always, forever, and on and on and on, even after the cross. Because you see, we understand the cross in light of God's covenant relationship with us. This is grace. We understand baptism in light of God's covenant with us. We understand the table in light of God's covenant with us. We understand scripture in light of God's covenant with us. And you see, this is the basis of our assurance. Because the covenant that God makes with you and I is a unilateral covenant. God doesn't wait for us to come to the bargaining table. He causes a deep sleep to come over Abraham. And as the deep sleep comes over Abraham, there are these animals split in half and God himself walks through. God set the tone. God set the standard. God did the act. God did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That is covenant theology. That assurance comes to us because God has made a covenant with us. I have not made a covenant with God. That's what happened in the garden. That's what blew the thing up. That's why there's death. That's why there's sin. Adam as my representative. God, his grace comes to us and he established his covenant with you and with me. He is asking you for an everlasting covenant. Oh, the assurance of that. You made a covenant with Abraham. 
you ever said that? Have you ever prayed that? See, that's what the psalmist is doing. This is the guy. What do I do when I pray prayers of thanks? Oh, I thank you for my house. I thank you for cars. I thank you for a nice sunny day. at myself in the mirror and says, Bob, how shallow. Yeah, there's things to thank God for, sure, yeah. But when I'm there Tuesday doing the same thing and Wednesday the same thing, where is the depth of my gratitude for how God has chosen to relate to Bob Cavell? That God establishes a covenant so strong, so firm, that I can have the absolute assurance that God will bring it out and bring it to me. I shall go to glory. Why? Because God has made a covenant with me. And the blood of Jesus Christ has sealed it. Now what does the psalmist do? That's where he starts. He starts with this covenant, verses 7 through 11. But then notice what happens in the rest of the psalm. We have a story. We have a story of Israel. We have a story of a famine. We have a story of Joseph going down. We have the story of Joseph becoming the second in command. We have the story of Jacob taking his family down there. We have the story of how they became enslaved. We have the story of God's deliverance. We have the story of what God did. And you see what this is? See, this is not history given to us. This is a prayer of thanks. What the psalmist is doing is saying, Lord, I thank you. And he goes on for 26 verses. Lord, I thank you for the deliverance you have given to us as your people. I thank you for how you have done it in the past. I thank you for how you are doing it in the present. And I thank you that you will continue to do this. I don't think I've ever prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to God in which the prayer was this, Lord, I thank you for bringing plagues upon the Egyptians. Now I'm thanking them for a sunny day or nice weather. The psalmist, you see, is going back into the story. These become the basis of our thanksgiving to God. That we see the marvelous ways in which God has delivered his people. Because what is that? That's a picture of my giving. To an even greater enemy. And as surely as God fulfills that aspect of that covenant to those people, he will fulfill it through, Lord, I thank you you brought those plagues upon Egypt and by those plagues you delivered your people. No, you delivered me. 
for I am one of your people. I'm in there. I'm in that group. Lord, you put me. I know how the powers use it in order to bring your people out of Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery. Lord, I thank you. Like Nehemiah, in spite of all the opposition, built a wall. You see how we could go on and on and on. A book full. A book full. Of God's wondrous work of deliverance. For me to give him you think God gets tired of hearing about how he delivered his people out of Egypt? Do you think God gets tired of hearing of how he delivered me from slavery? Which do you think God would rather hear? Lord, thank you for the letter to me. Again today, I just reflect upon the fact that you in covenant come into my my life and you've delivered me out of slavery. And all those wonderful testimonies in your word, the way you protected Abraham from Abimelech, to the way you protected Abraham from famine. Lord, I thank you for the way you guarded and protected Daniel, how you protected those three friends. How you delivered them to glory. You were delivering me. God's covenant, God's story, his story of deliverance, but it's also the story of his blessing. As that psalm comes to an end, there is the picture there, you see, of the cloud over them that covered them, that watched over them, that protected them. That's what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about how God watched over them, how God protected them. Did any of you drive on Tuesday? If you drove on Tuesday, just raise your hand. If you drove on Tuesday, okay. Did you drive on Wednesday? Do you got something to give God thanks for? Was his cloud of protection over you? Was he watching over your life? That's what the psalmist is saying. Lord, I thank you. You protected your people. That cloud that that separated your people from the Egyptians. That was you, Lord. You were there at work. Lord, Lord, now that I think about it, that car almost hit me. Lord, thank you. You protected me. 
All sorts of bad things could have happened. God's protection. He covered his people, verse 39. He provided, as we were there this morning, that manna, that water. He provided them the sustenances of life. Maybe this is where we get to the weather. Maybe this is where we get to our home. But you see, it, took a, it, it takes a while to get to there. These expressions of thanks for his provisions are there. Yes, they're there. They're to be included. But they're not the only thing that are there. There's this richness of history of God's faithfulness. And then there's the fact that he remembers, verse 42. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. What is he remembering? His covenant. God never forgets the promise he has made to you and to me. Father, Remembering the covenant written in the blood of your Son that covers over all of my sin. I thank you. I thank you for all your promises that are amen. Amen in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. God's people say it. Amen.